God where it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who've been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. The bad as well as the good and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that uh, you're a good and a gracious God, a uh, God whom we can trust. Uh, and Lord, we pray that as we think about what happens after this life, that we would see your goodness and your graciousness, uh, even as we see your justice uh, and your wrath. Lord, help us to understand what happens after this life uh, and to receive your invitation in Jesus. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we've been thinking over the last few weeks about what happens after this life and today we're looking at the idea that heaven happens but not hell. Uh, the idea is that when we die, all of us, every human being, goes to heaven. Uh, that's the idea, that's the kind of the idea uh, that some people have expressed, that we all die and that when we die, uh, we all go to be uh, in heaven. It probably won't surprise uh, some people to hear that that's not the view that the Bible puts forward. The Bible puts forward the view instead that one day all of us will stand before the God who created us and will have to give an account. Uh, and some people will live with God forever in a world made right and some people will suffer for an eternity because they've chosen to live without the God who made them uh, and who loves them. In some ways that's an all or nothing issue, right? Uh, either it's true that there's no judgment and we all go to heaven uh, or it's true that there is a judgment and that not everyone will uh, participate uh, in the glory of God. The two views can't sort of go together. You can't uh, have both at the same time. 
So if it's true that there's no judgment but we all go to heaven, then great, right? Then we can all just get on with uh, living our lives and just get on with what we have to do. But if it's not true that we all go to heaven, if there is a day of judgment, then it really matters whether or not we're prepared for that. So what I want to do uh, today, what I want to do now, is to think through what the Bible has to say about what happens after this life particularly with respect to the notion of hell and judgment. The first thing to say is that the greatest theologian of hell in the Bible is Jesus. So no one in the Bible says more about hell than Jesus does. That's remarkable because no one says more about the grace of God than Jesus does either. In fact, the Bible's message is that Jesus came into the world in order to rescue people and to share with them eternal uh, life and joy and peace with God. So in a sense, if there's anyone who has less reason to talk about uh, hell, it's Jesus. Jesus came to talk about the grace of God. But actually, Jesus also came, surprisingly, to talk about hell and to talk about hell surprisingly often. Uh, One of those places where Jesus speaks about hell is in the parable that we read. There we see Jesus speaking about the idea of judgment. Uh, Some of the guests of the king's banquet are judged because they kill the king's servants. Uh, One of the king's guests is thrown outside into darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the language that Jesus often uses to describe hell. Uh, Let me give you another example of what Jesus says about hell. This is from the Gospel of Luke, from chapter 12. I tell you, my friend, says Jesus, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Jesus is saying that losing your life is not the worst thing that can happen to you. There's something worse than that. According to Jesus, uh, you shouldn't fear death. You should fear what happens after that. You should fear the person who has your eternity in their hands. The one who has the authority to cast you into hell. The person Jesus is talking about is God. According to Jesus, there's a fate worse than death. And the fate worse than death is appearing before God and being cast into hell. Jesus says we should be really worried about that. There is a judgment day coming and what happens on that day matters. It matters for eternity. In the story that we read, Jesus reveals how we can be prepared for that. Uh, If you like, how we can know in advance what the outcome of that day will be. But before we look uh, at that, it's worth spending a few moments just thinking about what actually happens if you jettison the idea of hell and judgment. Although on the surface that idea seems like a really good idea that there's no judgment, there's no reckoning, that we all go to heaven when we die. Although that sounds like a nice idea, actually it's incredibly problematic. Let me mention uh, just two problems that arise from that view. In the first place, it denies people justice. We've all been hurt by some other people. 
Uh, some, some people have been hurt very, very badly. Suppose uh, that a person has been raped. Is it fair or just that that person's attacker will be in heaven? Is it fair that that person's attacker, if they're never caught in this world, is it fair that that person gets off scot-free? What about those, uh, the, the victims of all those cold cases? You know, the police go through these cases that are 20, 30 years old, cases of, of murders. The, 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 the offender's never found. Is it fair that that person just gets off scot-free? Or what about really evil people? What about people like Hitler or Stalin? Hitler took his own life before he even had a chance to uh, face uh, the uh, criminal trials that others faced. A few weeks ago on Four Corners there was a report looking at the violence and atrocities perpetrated by the Assad regime. I think I mentioned it a a few weeks ago. Uh, And it looked at the war crimes investigation being run uh, by, by part of the international community into those crimes. The reporters of that program interviewed one Syrian man who described the torture that he was put put through. They laid him on the ground and they uh, kicked him and beat him. They beat him with sticks. They jumped on him in order to break his ribs. What else they did to that poor man is so barbaric and horrific that I won't even begin to mention it here. Just awful. At one point, the interviewer asked him, how do you feel about the people who did that to you? And in tears, he said, God will hold them to account. The law will hold them to account. I won't rest until I take them to court and get justice. You see, at one level, far from being bad news, the judgment of God is good news because it brings justice. Not just the justice of a courtroom, because we all know how inadequate and incomplete that can be. No, the Day of Judgment brings true justice for the unspeakable horrors that people have suffered at the hands of other human beings. A future without judgment for evil is not a paradise, but just another hell. Another world as plagued by evil as this one. But second, getting rid of the idea of judgment and hell also affects the way that people live now. That is, it can lead to complete moral indifference. There's no judgment to come, then why not live however we want? Karl Marx was a staunch opponent of Christianity. Uh, He famously described Christianity as the opium of the masses because he believed that the Christian hope in the afterlife led people to be complacent about their suffering now. But the Nobel Prize winning poet Czesław Miłosz, if I've got that right, uh, turns that idea on his head when he writes, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders are not going to be judged. You'd think that he would know 
Miłosz saw in both Nazism and communism how a repudiation of God led to incredible brutality. Well, you know, why not, why not kill off loads of, loads of innocent people if, your deeds, if you're in power and your deeds won't be brought into judgment? Think about it. If nothing that you do now will have consequences in the next life, then you may as well do what you want. And that doesn't just apply to totalitarian regimes, it applies even to the small things of life. If what you do has no consequences uh, in the next life, then why keep your promise to be faithful to your wife? I mean, what's, what's the point? Why not just do what works best for you now, right? Because it's all about this life, so just do what makes you feel good now. Why be nice to people? Why be generous to the poor? Why not just keep all your money and spend it on enjoying your life? Because at the end of the day, all that matters is this life. No, the true opium of the people is the idea that our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice, our murders are not going to be judged. Hell matters because justice matters. It matters to us and it matters to God. So that's just two of the implications, I think, of what, what, the, what it means if we jettison the idea of hell. But I want to think a little bit more then about what Jesus has to say about hell and why it exists uh, and, if you like, who's in and who's out. So in the story that we read before, Jesus likens eternity with God to a great banquet or a great party. Uh, A king decides to put on a banquet for his son. All the preparations have been made. The last step is to send the servants to fetch all the people uh, who'd been invited. The only catch for this party is that the guests don't want to come. The servants go, they tell the, the guests who've been invited, everything's ready, the food's cooked, the tables have been laid... But the guests don't care. In what way is the kingdom of heaven like a banquet? Jesus says it's like a banquet or a party in that lots of people are invited, but few people actually turn up. Jesus could have been living today, couldn't he? <laughs> you throw a party and no, one, and no one comes. Yeah, 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 coming. No one turns up. Well, why don't people come? In the first place, some people are just indifferent. They just don't care. They're subject to a better offer. They have a field to look after, a business to run. How do you feel if no one turns up uh, to your party? (laughs) You throw a party, you you, you get everything ready, you, you, you buy expensive food, you spend hours preparing. How do you feel if no one turns up? You feel pretty ordinary, don't you? Why, why do you feel like that? It's partly because people not turning up is a reflection on how much they value you. Now, if you invite someone to your party and they say, I'm sorry, I had to go shopping. Uh, I, had to, I had to do the grocery shopping. It's really pressing. What does that say about how much they value? If they value you, they'll come, won't they? And they'll say, I'll do the shopping later. 
I'll find another time. If something really matters to you, you'll find a way to make it happen, don't you? But if you don't, if you don't turn up, if someone invites you and you don't turn up for the weakest of reasons, that says, I don't care about you. I care about myself more than I care about you. You see, it's not that God hasn't invited people to the party. God's gone to great lengths to invite people to the party. He sent his own son into the world to hand out a personal invitation. It's cost God enormously to invite people to his uh, new party. His own son died on the cross so that people could be invited. And what do people say? I'm sorry, I've got something better to do. And there are still people all over the world inviting others to know God through Jesus, inviting others to eternity with God, free from death and evil, inviting people to escape hell and to enjoy a world put right through the grace and the love and the mercy of God. But people just don't come. The invitations go out. But people refuse to come. Is it realistic to think that when God has invited people uh, to his party and when they've refused to come, is it realistic to expect that ultimately he'll welcome them in? Or more than that, what other option is there open to God apart from invitation? He's invited people and they haven't come. By their own admission, they don't want to be there. What do do we want God to do beyond that? To chain them down and to force them to come? When by their own admission, they don't want to be there. No, if people don't come, it's by their own choice because of their indifference. But second, Jesus says, some people are positively hostile. Some people are just indifferent. Uh, I've got other things to do. But others actively set out to stand in opposition to God and to stand against God's invitation. Uh, Jesus likens it to beating people, uh, beating up the messengers sent out to bring the party invitations. Uh, How would you feel if uh, guests that you sent invitations to beat up your uh, your servants, if you had servants, it would be a great world, wouldn't it, where you had servants, but not if people were beating them up when you brought the party invitations. But, but how would you feel? You'd feel rubbish, wouldn't you? Uh, you'd be outraged, in fact. It's a bit like maybe, I mean, we don't have servants, do we, and we don't send out party invitations like that, but maybe a comparison might be throwing a party and, uh, and someone coming along, gate-crashing it and, and starting a fight, Happens all the time, doesn't it? You see it on the news that someone throws a party, some other kind of, you know, the rival group turns up and they end up in fisticuffs, as they say. Someone ends up being beaten up. In some ways, it's almost unthinkable, isn't it? I mean, you know, in polite society, we don't do that kind of thing. It's almost unthinkable that you would send messengers to a party and that people would beat up the, beat up the, uh, the servants. You, you can't believe that it would happen, except that people really do it. In 1957, Jim Elliott and his four friends were speared to death in Ecuador by the very people for whom they'd given up everything in order to invite them to Jesus' banquet. They'd left their lives in America, they'd left their comfortable lives, their good jobs, 
and they'd gone to Ecuador to invite people to know God, to come to God's party. And they were speared to death. Remarkably, Jim Elliot's wife stayed on and persisted in taking Jesus' invitation to that tribe. But the Bible says it's not just that we've killed the messengers, we've killed the son as well. In another parable, just before this one, Jesus tells the story of a vineyard owner who entrusts the vineyard to some farmers. When the time has come to bring in the crop, the owner sends his servants to collect the harvest, but the farmers put the servants to death. They think to themselves, we want to keep this, for our, we want to keep this crop for ourselves. So the servants come from the owner, they put them to death. The owner thinks, well, I'll send another uh, servant, maybe, maybe, the, you know, maybe the miscommunication. I'll send another servant, uh, and, the, and, and they, the farmers kill that servant as well. In the end, the owner says to himself, well, look, I'm going to send my son, because maybe they won't listen to the servants, but maybe they'll listen to my son. Maybe they'll respect me enough that if I send my son, they'll listen to him. And what happens? The son gets there, and the farmers think to themselves, this is the perfect opportunity to get the inheritance, to, to, to get this for ourselves, to, to keep the crop and to keep the land. And they put him to death. God has invited us to his banquet. He's invited us through his own son, Jesus. And what did we do? As human beings, we strung him up on a cross in a last-ditch effort to steal Jesus' inheritance for ourselves. We want God's world for us, and we want it on our terms rather than on God's terms. Our natural hostility to God, of course, makes no sense. It makes no sense that we should be so hostile when God is reaching out to us in love to invite us to know him. Listen to these words of invitation from Jesus, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Or listen to these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Those are some of the most generous, the most wonderful, the most caring, the most loving, the most compassionate, the most forgiving words of invitation that anyone has ever uttered. And how do some people respond? With hatred, with hatred towards God and hatred towards Jesus. It doesn't make sense, does it? Come, come, come to my party, come and know me. Come and be in a relationship with me. Come and know and experience my love. Come and know and experience my grace and my compassion. No, I don't want anything to do with it. Listen to these words from Richard Dawkins. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. 
given that kind of hostility, is it really reasonable to suppose that God would welcome someone who hated him so much into an eternity with him? Is it really realistic to think that God, having reached out in love through Jesus to people and having received such hatred in return, such spite in return, is it really reasonable and realistic to think that God would welcome those people into his eternal presence when self-evidently those people don't want to be there? C.S. Lewis, the great writer, described hell as the greatest monument to human freedom, to human freedom from God. He wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. That is, you want eternity without me and without my love and without my grace and my compassion. You want that? You've got it. It's tragic, isn't it? But that's what people are asking for. And that's what God is giving. Either we receive God's invitation to eternity with him or God gives us what we want, a world where God and all his goodness are kept from us, a world where we know God only in his anger and in his justice. So people end up in hell not because God hasn't invited them to know him. People end up in hell because... They refuse to accept God's invitation through Jesus. So how does God respond to that? How does God respond to the fact that uh, the invitations go out and people uh, reject those invitations? Well, the answer that Jesus gives in the parable is remarkable. Jesus says that God responds to that rejection by some people by simply inviting more and more people and casting the net wider and wider. So Jesus, God's sending out the invitation through Jesus. People are, are refusing and God's saying, well, just well, keep going, keep, keep inviting, keep going as far as you can, keep inviting as many people as you can from all different walks of life. Look, look at verse 8. The king says to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out, says Jesus, into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. That is, the king says to his servants, if the people who are invited won't come, then find anyone who will. Find them on the street corners. Find them in the alleyways. It doesn't matter whether they're good or bad. Just invite them. Most naturally, we uh, think that the kind of people that God will receive into his new creation uh, are those people who are relatively good and decent people. Many religions teach that the way to God is by being good or doing the right thing or carrying out certain rituals. But it turns out that the people that God receives to his party are those who simply accept his invitation in Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. And whoever receives that invitation is welcomed by God into his eternal dwellings. In that sense, God is actually far more generous and far more just than we would ever be. God invites all the people that we wouldn't. When we put on a party, we invite our friends, our best friends, the people we like, the people who are nice to us, the people... 
who are decent and upstanding, God invites whoever will come. And whoever refuses to come doesn't get in. It's hard to know what could be more just or fair than that. What, what could be more reasonable than that? To invite everyone and to only, it, 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 to only uh, have the, to receive the people who, only the people who come, right? God invites the rich, but He also invites the poor. God invites the upstanding, but He also invites the scoundrels. God invites those who've never been convicted of a crime, those who've never even had a parking ticket. And God invites those who've been sentenced to jail and even to death for some of the most terrific and brutal crimes that the world has ever known. Uh, Those who are regulars here might remember that a few months ago I mentioned Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial murderer, uh, sex offender and cannibal, who by the time he was arrested had killed 17 men and boys. He was eventually murdered in prison by another prisoner, but it would seem that in the last years of his life he came to understand and receive God's invitation in Jesus. God invites people like Jeffrey Dahmer to his party. It's remarkable, isn't it? I wouldn't invite him to mine. Even after he'd come to know Christ, I'd probably struggle. But God invites him to his party. Why does God receive Jeffrey Dahmer to his party? Because God invited him and he accepted. So too some of the Nazis in their dying days received God's invitation. Henry Grecki was a Lutheran chaplain to some of the most notorious Nazis who were tried at Nuremberg. And he wrote about the fact that some of those men went to their deaths having received God's invitation in Jesus. Not all of them did. Some of them, like Goering, mocked Christianity to the very end. Goering's last words to Gorecki were, I'll take my chances. But others were different. Gorecki would pray regularly with Fritz Sarkel, the man responsible under the Nazi regime for recruiting slave labour. As they prayed, Sarkel would invariably end his prayers with these words, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Grecki met too with Wilhelm Keitel, the field marshal and head of the German high command. Keitel would focus on those parts of the Bible that spoke of the redemption through Christ. And in the last hours of Keitel's life, the two prayed in his cell, drenched in tears. And then one last time on the way to the gallows. Then there was von Ribbentrop, the foreign minister of the Nazi regime who spent the last days of his life reading the Bible. Included in his final statement were these words, God have mercy on my soul. Before he turned uh, to Gorecki and said, I'll see you again. 
Why would God receive people like that? People that none of us would invite to our own parties. Why would God receive people like that? Because he's invited them and they accepted the invitation. But there's one last twist in the tale of this story. The king's servants go out, they invite all kinds of people from all kinds of places, they invite the good and the bad, as they're instructed to do. The wedding hall is full of guests. But then the king comes in, and as he's looking over the guests, he sees this man who has no wedding clothes. He's not dressed for the occasion. Everyone else is in the right outfit, but this man hasn't bothered to dress up. And so the king asks him how he, how he got in. How did you get in without dressing in the right clothes? The man has nothing to say in response. He just kind of remains silent. He's speechless. But the king's response is extraordinary. He commands this man to be bound and to, to be cast out into the outer darkness, which in Jesus' language, that means hell. That's the picture of hell. What's going on? Isn't everyone invited? And isn't all we need to do just to accept the invitation? What's Jesus doing? What's he, is, he, is he contradicting what he's just said? No, Jesus' point is that this one man, although he came, he didn't come prepared. Jesus doesn't spell out in this story what that means, what it means to be prepared. But in many ways, the whole of his life and the whole of his ministry was about answering that one question. What does it mean to be prepared to know God and to meet God? The basic answer of Jesus' life and ministry is this. The way that we prepare to know God, to meet God, is through Jesus. The way we prepare for the wedding feast, the way we dress for the wedding feast is by putting on Jesus. That's important for two reasons. First, it's important because Jesus suffers the just punishment of our sin and rebellion against God in our place. You see, there are two options to all of us, two options open to all of us. Either we suffer hell ourselves for the wrongs that we've done, the wrongs that we've committed against others and against God. Either we suffer the judgment of God, the judgment of hell ourselves, or Jesus suffers that agony in our place. Jesus suffers, Jesus takes hell for us. Evil demands justice and either we suffer the consequences or in his love and mercy Jesus suffers the consequences in our place, punished by God for our offences. It's an extraordinary substitution but that's the promise of the gospel. Jesus died to ransom us from the penalty that we deserved. But second, by putting on Jesus... We're not only spared the condemnation that we deserve, we're also changed from being the people that we are. You see, what kind of hope is it to be spared judgment and to be raised to life again? Only to live in a world where we all continue to treat each other in the same evil way that we do now. Where we act like hypocrites, where we complain behind each other's backs where we steal from others the honour that they deserve, where we steal from others the wages or the income that they deserve. 
where we hurt the people that we love because of our selfishness or because they don't serve us and our desires the way that we want. The great Christian hope is that those people who have accepted God's invitation will be raised to new life as changed people. They will be transformed to be like Jesus, to be holy and blameless and good and loving and kind. How is it that a person like Jeffrey Dahmer or Wilhelm Keitel or Fritz Sauckel or von Ribbentrop, how is it possible that those people could be fit to be part of God's big wedding celebration? How could they be fit to be part of God's new world? It's because the just condemnation that they deserve has been paid, not by themselves, but by Jesus out of God's mercy and grace. And it's because when God raises from the dead those people who've trusted in Jesus, he'll raise them not as the same old people that they were, but as people remade and refashioned in the image of God, in the image of Jesus, in the image of the most beautiful and compassionate and generous and loving man who ever lived. So it's not that the world that God is bringing about in Jesus will be full of human beings just as evil as they ever were. Who wants to go to a party where everyone's still in the stinking rotten clothes that we've been wearing for this lifetime? I want to go to a party where the people who are turning up are dressed in better clothes than that. People who are dressed in the glory and the love and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. It will be a banquet filled with forgiven and reformed sinners, like Jeffrey Dahmer, like Nazi war criminals, and like you and me. And the only reason that any of us will be able to stand there is because we've accepted God's invitation in Jesus, and we've come prepared by putting on Jesus and linking up with him. What happens after this life? Justice demands that heaven and hell happens. Either we can receive God's invitation through Jesus and we can know God for eternity in a world put right, or we can reject God's invitation and we can try to come to God on our own terms and so end up suffering the consequences of our rejection of God for eternity. Here's God's invitation to you. Come to God through Jesus. Don't refuse God's invitation. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have invited us through Jesus to your great big party at the end of this age where Jesus will return uh, and where you will judge the living and the dead. And all those who have come to you through Jesus, who've linked up with Jesus, all those people uh, will enter into that great wedding party, uh, that eternity with you in a world put right. Lord, we pray that uh, every one of us would receive that invitation uh, and receive Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to
uh, live in the light of that, to live as people who know that we're accepted by you, not because of the good that we've done, uh, but in spite of the evil that we've done, because we know and love Jesus. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't refuse that invitation, uh, but that we would hear it, receive it, and believe it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.